Let's go to the text and read it together. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. You guys ready? Yep. Okay, great. Thanks. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you, for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. For two weeks now, we've been unpacking this concept of Jesus interpreting and fulfilling the Old Testament. So the synopsis for this evening, if you missed it, you can go back and listen to the podcast. For our purposes tonight, Jesus, as a Jewish rabbi, is elucidating to his audience the heart of God behind the legal code of the Old Testament. To do so, Jesus employs six examples, and they're all relational in nature. Murder, which was last week, adultery, divorce, oaths, violence, and finally, loving your enemies. And with each example, Jesus will broach the topic of the Mosaic Code, the law that was instituted in the Old Testament, and he will draw his disciples' attention to the heart of God behind the law. For example, last week we discussed this concept of the correlation between murder and anger. One paraphrase of Jesus' teaching might be something like this. You already know that the Torah, the Old Testament, the Mosaic Code, forbids murder. But I, Jesus, want you to understand why this is God's greater desire, that you would abstain even from anger against one another. And here again, as was the case with murder and its source in anger, the heart of God is not that his people would simply abstain from adultery and end there, but that they would eradicate the very source of adultery, which is, in Jesus' words, lust. New Testament scholar R.T. France puts it this way, the visible and punishable act forbidden in the commandment is only the outward expression of an inward desire, which is, in this case, adultery of the heart, so to speak. The commandment that Jesus quotes, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, is from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, and it is what one might assume it would be. It's the explicit reference to a man who engages in any sort of sexual relationship with another man's wife or someone who's not his wife. And Jesus' faithfulness to the Old Testament's very high value on marriage is actually pretty noteworthy. Other religions often denounced marriage as a distraction from spirituality. To grow in classic Hinduism or Buddhism, for example, one must forsake marriage vows and bonds altogether. But the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and then Jesus of Nazareth commands that his disciples never break nor disparage or dishonor their marriage vows. This is, of course, consistent with the writings of the scriptures all the way back to Genesis, in which Yahweh, the creator God, decrees that it is not good that man should be alone. The God of the scriptures loves marriage. It's actually his idea. He dreamed it up. And here, Jesus, who is, the scriptures say, the truest picture of what God is like and who God is, continues in honoring and protecting God's design. Now, of course, if you are not married, this is in no way any suggestion of your inferiority as Jesus' disciple. Need I remind us that Jesus himself was single, uh, as was Paul, deliberately so, who went on to author most of the New Testament. So if you're single by design or by choice, you're in great company. 
Singleness is not only not bad, it can also be very good. But the point that Jesus is making and will make again and again is that once established, the marriage covenant should not be dishonored or done away with, and that lust is a merciless fire that destroys marriage. And Jesus will go on to address divorce specifically and when and when a disciple of Jesus should not uh, divorce, but we'll get into that next week. Now, Jesus' words about anyone who looks at a woman lustfully invite a certain level of explanation. They seem pretty broad and generic and open to interpretation, at least from an outside uh, viewing. So let's take a brief caveat and work out two really helpful terms in this conversation, attraction and lust. Let's begin by unpacking the term attraction. Now, using myself as an example, resultant from some combination of biological factors, I can and do experience attraction to the opposite sex. And this is noteworthy because you'll notice that I did not say that I experience exclusive attraction to my wife. I am married and I am attracted to her just for the sake of saying that out loud. In fact, it's entirely possible that I, as this biologically functioning human being, could be out to, say, a movie, see a woman pass by to take her seat, and be attracted to her. Attraction, in and of itself, is not sin. Now, we all have different wirings and dispositions and tendencies and brokenness when it comes to our sexual desires. Uh, some of them are innate. Some of them are learned. But the ordinary experience of attraction in and of itself, is not sinful. The, this brings us to lust, which is an entirely different concept. Lust is an outgrowth of attraction, but unlike attraction, lust introduces a nurtured desire and fantasy and imagination. So to return to my hypothetical night at the movies, I see a woman pass by, I find her attractive, uh, involuntarily so, I experience that attraction and then I revel in it. Even for a moment, I imagine what it might be like to romance this woman. I, I eye her thoughtfully. I enter into fantasy. This is lust, and this is the topic that Jesus broaches. In fact, one scholar I read this week translated Jesus' words as, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman and wants to have sex with her. Attraction is itself sexual in nature. As, as strange as that is to say. That is, when you see a man or a woman in passing with whom you experience an involuntary surge of attraction, this attraction is sexual, biologically speaking. You are not attracted to their personalities, you know, as they pass by at the movies or whatever it might be. But the sexual attraction alone is not the issue. Again, this from RT France. The focus is not, as some tender adolescent consciences have read it, on sexual attraction as such, but on the desire for, and perhaps planning of, an illicit sexual liaison. Or consider this from Dale Bruner, to look at an attractive person, oh wait, that's not the one. Take that down, Danny, I'll just read this to you guys. We'll use that one later. To look at an attractive person can be a drive given in creation. To keep on looking, staring, is a drive given in the fall from creation. Jesus condemns lustful looking, staring with the intent to possess or at least to burn with passion. The other person is no longer really a unique human being. She or he is now simply kindling, tender, a thing, a way for one to enjoy oneself, to express oneself, to feel one's power. That's lust. Now, I mention all this for a number of reasons, but namely 
to de-emphasize our innocent and unavoidable periodic sensations of attraction while simultaneously emphasizing the sobering enormity of our susceptibility to lust. Uh, one church father I read this week when describing the difference between attraction and lust said, I cannot keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from nesting in my hair or biting my nose off. I thought that was kind of funny. The antiquated, antiquated humor. Um, and I implore every one of you guys, myself included, to receive Jesus' word of warning in a manner just as sobering as it was 2,000 years ago. The fact that ours is a culture inundated with lust is so well publicized that it borders on cliche. I'm sure I'm not going to surprise you guys with any of the statistics I'm about to give you. Uh, depending on which statistic or survey you consult, about 64% or two-thirds of U.S. men admit to viewing porn at least monthly. Uh, the 12 to 17-year-old age group is the largest consumer of internet pornography. The average age of exposure to internet porn is 11 years old. And while research does still indicate that men may be more likely to view porn than women, the same research absolutely demolishes the stereotype that porn is a uniquely male problem. Uh, in a recent survey done by the Barna Research Group, 21% of women ages 50 to 58 admitted to looking at porn at least a few times a year. 32% of women ages 31 to 49 admitted to the same thing, and 65% of millennial women ages 18 to 30 admitted to viewing porn at least a few times a year. 16% of single women said they view porn once a month or so, and 25% of married women said the same exact thing. One uh, 2016 survey that I read revealed that 57% of men polled confessed to having an affair. 54% of women admitting to doing likewise. Now, I don't want to tonight get into the ambiguity and the nuance of uh, the arts and try to tell you about film and television and all that stuff. That's a complicated subject and it does require a tremendous amount of wisdom and living out the teachings of Jesus, the scriptures, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But how we react to and experience art is often unique person to person and I want to deal in objectives for tonight, which makes porn an easy go-to topic. Even so, I realize that though statistically many of you in this room look at porn, many of you also do not. And regardless, the statistics on porn use, if they're even slightly correct, cast a deeply troubling spotlight on our sort of collective cultural condition. To illustrate the severity of such an offense, Jesus employs shocking hyperbole by warning his disciples that the consequences of self-mutilation are preferable to the self-destructive consequences of lust. So, Jesus says, if your eye is the thing that causes you to sin or to stumble, then cut it out of your head now. And the metaphor of stumbling is one that will come up again and again in Matthew's gospel in particular. The Greek word is skandalizo, and it could refer to enticing someone to sin or to cause a person to begin to distrust or desert the one that they ought to trust and obey. If you've been around Christian culture for even a little while, you've probably heard the Christianese catchphrases about being stumbled or being a stumbling block, which in my experience personally, maybe yours is different. It, it often just means offending anyone over anything at any time. Oh, stumbled. Uh, but in Jesus' use of the word, the offense is way more catastrophic. It refers to setting something in someone's path 
which causes them to fall along the road to salvation. Uh, it's a stumbling block, uh, is a person or a thing which interrupts or hampers God's saving purpose in a person's life, which is a huge, huge catastrophe. So when Jesus begins to describe the preferable nature of amputees over those thrown into hell, um, he's not inviting us to build this doctrinal theory about the physicality of hell or, or the nature of existence after death. He's comparing partial loss to total loss. That is the purpose of Jesus' analogy. That is the one who gouges out their own eye forfeits one valuable thing. The person who succumbs to destructive patterns of lust forfeits everything. Uh, Matthew scholar Frederick Bruner writes this, Jesus does not advise cautious, gradual action. He counsels surgery, and immediately. He does not advise band-aids. He commands amputations. All gradual breaks are ill-considered, and in light of this command, disobedient. Jesus commands a swift, brutal, and seemingly savage, tear it out and throw it away like emergency amputation. In the long run, this mercilessness is the greater mercy. And you'll notice Jesus mentions the body being thrown into hell. And remember that word that most of your Bibles translate as hell is actually Gehenna. And it is an actual well-known physical location outside of Jerusalem, which is also called the Valley of Hinnom. Gehenna was a detestable place in Jewish thinking, infamous as the site in which humans, often babies or small children, were sacrificed by fire to the pagan god Moloch. It later became something like a landfill in which the city waste was thrown and burned. So Jesus often uses this notorious location as a metaphor that describes the fate of those who reject him and his teachings. They will be destroyed in the disgusting, detestable dump outside the city. They will be thrown into Gehenna. And notice Jesus mentions specifically your body will be the thing that is thrown into Gehenna. For Jesus, we are not merely souls in the prison of a body. We are bodies and we are souls. What happens in the body affects the soul just as the fate of the body and the soul are also intertwined. And as the New Testament authors go on to describe in detail, sexual sin is something that violates the soul and the body. This is from Paul later in 1 Corinthians. Flee from sexual immorality. In fact, that term in Greek is porneia, where we get the word pornography. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So according to Jesus and his disciples, sexual sin is unique in that it specifically targets your entire personhood, not just your soul, but your body as well. This is so dangerous an offense, Jesus says, it would be better to gouge out your eye than to risk being thrown in the dump to be burned and destroyed. So to make use of a cheap and easy analogy, imagine yourself situated before a scene in which a massive truck is barreling down a street where a small child stands. You have determined that there's only time to dive at this person, this precious kid, 
tackling them from the path of danger without time for gentle or careful removal. So, will this small, fragile child be injured by your rescue? Almost certainly. In fact, they could be bruised or bloodied or maybe you even break a bone when you tackle them violently out of the way. But they will not be destroyed by the truck. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has this to say on the topic. This is not repression, as people sometimes suggest. It's more like the pruning of a rose, cutting off some healthy buds so that the plant may grow stronger and produce better flowers. Choosing not to be swept along by inappropriate sexual passion may well feel, on occasion, like cutting off a hand or plucking out an eye. And our world has frequently tried to tell us that doing this is very bad for us. But for neither the first nor the last time, we must choose to obey our Lord rather than the world. Now, before we end tonight, I think we have to address the fact that this text arrives differently to men than it does women. And yet there are sobering implications here for all of us. You'll notice that in the passage, Jesus' warning is directed to his male disciples in particular. He specifically mentions the adulterous acts of men against women, and he mentions the objectification of women by men. In doing so, Jesus is protecting women from objectification and from unfaithfulness. And this is actually particularly noteworthy when you unpack a bit of context uh, for the pervasively chauvinistic, patriarchal approach to adultery in the ancient world in which adultery was often excusable for the husband but never for the wife. Here's one ancient source that articulates the prevailing thought of Jesus' day. If you should take your wife in adultery you may with impunity put her to death without a trial. But if you should commit adultery or indecency, she must not presume to lay a finger on you, nor does the law allow it. This is the culture in which Jesus lives and teaches, and he directs his teaching at men and lays the responsibility on them. Notice how radically reversed an idea that is. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight noticed this of the passage. Jesus lays full responsibility in this text on the male and expects males to be able to control their desires. Jesus prevents a blame her looks or but she enticed me approach. The problem in this text is male desire. Now, with that said, it isn't helpful to buy into the old destructive stereotype that lust is a problem for men only. If we're going on porn statistics alone, we'd have to abandon that myth. The lie that lust affects only the male demographic has kept, frankly, uh, in my experience and conversations I've had as a pastor, uh, it's kept many women silent with no recourse in addressing their own sexual sin and addiction and desire. Because if you've been immersed in the notion that men are carnal, visual, drooling sex fiends with a propensity for sex addiction, then how do you as a woman stand up and say you also struggle with lust? Does that make you a freak or are you somehow less woman because of it? Absolutely not. And while there are differences in the way that lust affects men and women for sure, lust is nonetheless a near universal human condition. Women can become sexually attracted. Women, not unlike men, can and often do struggle with lust or sexual addiction or pornography or masturbation and so on. And women can commit adultery indeed or in the heart just as a man can as well. And Jesus' warning, though it is absolutely addressed to his male audience, it applies to the female disciples who would have been gathered around him as he spoke just the same. But let's consider for a moment the framing of Jesus' words. 
Yes, the prohibition against lust and adultery applies to all of Jesus' disciples, male and female. But how are we to understand and apply Jesus' choice of words here? Why does he direct this one specifically to the men? What does it mean that he addressed the men with specificity? So men, let's begin with us for just a moment. Firstly, I think we need to understand the great value that Jesus places on women. Jesus top, taught and operated in a hyper-patriarchal culture uh, that radically devalued women, that understood them as inferior, subservient to men. They treated them as objects rather than people who are made in God's image. And I'm sure most of you guys know that much of this same sentiment carries on today, even in our allegedly enlightened, forward-thinking, progressive culture of the Pacific Northwest and in America in particular. And Jesus is saying that we, as his disciples, must have no part of that whatsoever. And I want us to understand the great seriousness of Jesus' words here. Make no mistake, Jesus is saying, listen, if you can't look at a woman who is made in God's image without reducing them to fodder for fantasy, then cut your eye out of your head or you will be destroyed in hell. That is what Jesus is saying. And when we participate in our culture's chauvinistic proclivity to eye women lustfully, to assign them ratings, to argue over who's hotter, to behave as though they are anything other than equally valued bearers of God's image, we would do better to cut our eyes out of our heads. That's it. And when we imagine lust as a sort of innocent, boys will be boys, everyone does it behavior, then may the stark and sobering words of Jesus rattle us out of that satanic stupor. And if your tendency to lust is often more than the prolonged stare, if you're deliberately seeking out titillation and pornography, then let me remind you that you are actually entering into an evil much greater than that of the imagination alone. The women that are made in God's image, that you reduce to objects as fodder for fantasy and masturbation, they are often trafficked or raped or injured or beaten or silenced or driven to addiction and suicide to silence the horror that they experience in the porn industry every single day. This week, I read uh, memoirs and interviews with people who have or currently are participating in the porn industry, and they actually physically nauseated me. And that's a really difficult thing to do, honestly. I considered reading some of them to you guys, and I did not want it to become a distraction from the overall teaching, because I don't know if we could all handle it. And maybe to you, uh, these men and women in these videos are just little actors on the internet. They're hardly real or human at all. But when you engage in that world, you fund and contribute to and further the heinous evil of that industry. And listen, I'm not saying any of this to beat you down with guilt and shame at all. I'm saying this to wake us up. Because there's absolutely hope and forgiveness and compassion for you in Jesus. Absolutely, no matter how far off the rails you've gone or how much you've participated or how much porn you've looked at or whatever, there is forgiveness and compassion for you in Jesus tonight, right now. But Jesus' words force us to take these things very, very seriously. Now, women, what role, if any, do you play in this process? What does it mean if you're a female disciple of Jesus sitting there on the hill while Jesus teaches and says, hey, men, and directs the teaching at them? 
As we've already said, the prohibition against lust and adultery equally applies to men and women. But how are you to understand and live under the authority of Jesus' words directed toward men in particular? Uh, For years now, there's been this really uh, controversial sort of distracting debate in the church over this concept, uh, I would argue often misunderstood concept of modesty, and the question of how much responsibility does a woman have in keeping her brothers in the church from defeating the demon of lust. First, I want to make one thing exceedingly clear. In the issue of a man lusting after a woman, the man is the guilty party. The man is responsible for his sin, for his gaze, for his lack of self-control, and that's it. Whether you're at church or at a beach or at yoga class or in some Muslim culture where all the women are wearing bulk burqas, the responsibility to abstain from lust is on you. It is not on the people around you, and that's it. Believe me, none of these, oh, the women around me should have dressed differently, none of those arguments will hold up before Jesus. When the church goes on about women needing longer skirts or fewer bikinis or baggier pants or whatever, they shift blame and deflect responsibility. And it is egregious mistake to the church and to the way of Jesus. And to be quite frank, uh, as strange as this may sound, uh, our bodies, both men and women, are good things. In fact, they're beautiful things. Uh, Dr. Sharon Miller puts it this way, the problem is not the female body. The female body is good. Read Genesis 1. Instead, the problem is our culture's distortion of that goodness. Our culture objectifies the female creation, divorcing it from the holistic female person and disorienting disorienting it from its proper direction toward God. Both men and women are complicit in this perversion. And listen to me, guys. The idea is not that you, males, men, would run in fear at the sight of women Women are good. Their bodies are good. God made them. Even attraction itself, the admiration of a woman's beauty, is not sinful. Objectifying a woman is sinful. Uh, I remember once specifically this uh, memory of being out somewhere and and two of my uh, friends that happened to be gals walked up and uh, I thought they both looked really nice. So I said something. My wife was standing with me and I was like, wow, you guys look really beautiful tonight. You look so lovely. I was, you know, complimented their uh, appearance. And afterward, I, I remember that experience particularly because Abby was, uh, my wife Abby was really touched by it and um, said that she wished that that was more ordinary and less weird uh, because it didn't need any kind of special qualification. I didn't say, hey, listen, I know I'm married, but man, you guys look real nice. Oh, this is awkward now. Sorry. You know, that I, I thought that they looked lovely. I told them that. I meant what I said. It wasn't scary or weird or it, was, it wasn't dangerous. It wasn't disingenuous. Um, I mean it when I tell my female friends that they look beautiful. And when I think it, I often say it if, uh, if I'm in my right mind. And guys, I really don't think that this is something we should be afraid of. I don't think it should freak us out. We shouldn't look at women with paranoia and run from them. Now, to be clear, the scriptures, if you know, do go on with a bit to say about how female disciples of Jesus should rightly apply the concept of modesty. But interestingly, nearly all of said commands have nothing to do with sexuality whatsoever and everything to do with materialism. That is, when the Bible does have something to say about the apparel and the ornamentation of women, it warns against materialism. It warns against buying crap that you don't need to impress people that don't care, frankly. So, 
Is there any reason at all for women to be mindful of the way that they dress? I would actually argue yes, but not because keeping men from lust is a woman's responsibility. It's not. Not because your bodies are bad. They're not. And not because it's up to you and this, ri this whole thing rises and falls on the way that the thing that you put on in the morning. That's not the case at all. But because you belong to the family of God. And here we get reminded of Jesus' most unpopular fundamental teaching. Anyone who would be my disciple must deny themselves. Every day. Jesus with the worst PR ever. Uh, my friend Bethany, the best pastor that I know, says it like this. There is a responsibility when you, a follower of Jesus, wake up in the morning to think about and rightly govern your bodies. This includes the way we dress and interact with the world and culture through fashion. We need to be stewards of what we've been given. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are responsible to dress appropriately in your discipleship to Jesus in order to be above reproach as you work towards holiness and equally as you work to honor those around you with your image and sexuality. The conversation about modesty and lust is, has been, and always will be a space where we are all called to come and die. We do this not only for the good of those around us, but for the honor that is due to Jesus and the invitation we've been given to follow him and live in his kingdom. Interestingly, uh, when I set about to you know, study and write this teaching, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm so not into having to say these things. <laughs> and, uh, and frankly, I felt you know, unqualified to make all these comments about the, you know, the wiring of the female brain and um, what women should or shouldn't do. So I started to have com conversations with just about every woman in leadership that I could think of and consult all the writings that I could find. And the interesting thing that kind of surfaced to me along that um, time of studying was that I was told and read on several occasions that so-called immodesty for women often has less to do with wanting male attention or hypersexuality as it does with competing with other women or a desire for power or for influence. And these desires are rooted in fear, essentially. They don't have anything to do with sexuality at all. The point is that a dialogue around modesty, complex and controversial though it may be, can ultimately lead us into a conversation about the family of God. We're all in this together. We are all called to the same denial of ourselves. Because of this, we sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes with discretion and the community of God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, deviate in certain ways from our freedom for the sake of our community. Meaning, it's not sinful, for example, if you enjoy the occasional glass of wine, um, it's not sinful for you to do that from time to time. But perhaps you would refrain from doing so in front of someone in your community who struggles with alcoholism. If you didn't, if you had the glass of wine in front of them uh, and they sinned, is that sin your fault? A absolutely not. That's, that's on them. But did you honor them with humble compassion and loving concern? And guys and gals, you are responsible for abstaining from lust. Girls, you are not subject to the expectations and limitations of any and every man. Not at all. Dressing immodestly is never a permission slip for any man to objectify you whatsoever. But we can talk to one another. Women, you can talk to the men in your life with nuance 
and with unique conviction. You can invest in them. You can listen to them. You can create safe places for discussion and vulnerability. And both men and women can serve and sacrifice for one another in order that the family of God would become more holy. We're all in this together. And our desire is to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Men and women, you were not created to objectify one another, nor were you created to be objectified. You were created for intimacy, both with one another and with God. And you can actually map sexual arousal in neurochemical terms, I learned, as a result of various forms of contact. It could be with the eyes or the skin or whatever. The brain starts releasing dopamine. Dopamine, in turn, forges neural pathways in your mind, which is your brain's way of teaching itself, hey, when we do this, it feels good. We should keep on doing this, you know? Thus, any, it's like the little mind workers in any given cartoon about the way that your brain works. Um, any sort of sexual contact nurtures the desire for further contact of the same nature. And get this, with the same person. But in addition to dopamine, the brain also releases something called oxytocin and vasopressin, which both create a bonding experience between two parties. And here's the wild part. This happens every time a human with a healthy brain has any kind of sexual experience, which is crazy. And this is actually wonderfully revealing. Neuroscientists now argue that our brains are actually hardwired for intimacy and fidelity. It's like in the makeup of our brain. Those of us who follow Jesus actually attribute this to God's good design. Now, that makes perfect sense. God made us that way, that we might know and celebrate healthy sexuality within the paradigm for which God created, a man and a woman in a monogamous, lifelong marriage covenant. The experience that many of us have had of guilt or shame or confusion that often accompanies a sexual experience post-dopamine when you're in your right mind is the brain's way of saying, whoa, I'm confused. Where's the bond? Where's the intimacy? Where's the fidelity? How come it's not happening? And Jesus is saying he wants what's best for his disciples. No guilt, no shame, only the goodness of our God-given sexuality expressed in the context for which it was created. So before we pray tonight and before we worship again, I have two suggestions for everyone here, really. If you're struggling with lust or you're not currently struggling, I think we can all agree that lust is an equal opportunity employer and it, and it occurs to all of us in different seasons of life. Um, so the first suggestion is this, gouge out your eye in Jesus' language, hyperbolically speaking, metaphorically speaking. If your laptop causes you to sin, get rid of your laptop. If your smartphone causes you to sin, get rid of your smartphone. Use accountability software. It's a thing. It's out there readily available. Um, don't use technology when you're by yourself. Create safeguards and habits that protect you. Uh, create accountability with people you know. Tell someone, hey, this is a thing for me. Can you help me stay with it? And so you know that they ask you weird questions that you have to answer, and it becomes a place for vulnerability and accountability. And when you enter into those measures... You need confession. They always begin with confession. I believe confession is a community thing. Um, and I don't mean you have to go to your particular Van City community and tell everyone everything you've ever done. But I do think that it happens in the community of God, the family of God, with someone that you trust. Um, you know, the New Testament writers say, confess your sins to each other so that you might be healed. 
So talk to someone. Uh, talk to someone on the prayer team tonight. You actually don't have to know them at all. Still the family of God. They can guide you through the process of confession and repentance with God. For many of us, this can feel scary or shameful or dirty. But really, I mean, how many of us can't relate to some struggle of lust in our lives? If not right now, some other time. I think that there's some level of familiarity in just about every breath living, breathing hum human in the room. I, I know absolutely I have been guilty made horrible mistakes, had to have awkward conversations with my wife and my friends and so on. Um, it's absolutely, a, unfortunately, a near universal thing. So there's no guilt and no shame waiting for you. But you can't begin repentance without confession. You cannot begin the awkward conversations about what to do next without confession. So start tonight. Secondly, uh, and to end, begin to walk the road of repentance and transformation. It's not a one-and-done type of thing, and I think we all know innately that it is something that takes repeated measures and ongoing work. Um, we have two groups created specifically for those looking to break the cycle of sexual sin and addictive behavior and habits. Uh, 423 men, and we have 423 women as well. We also offer a third group called 423 Wives, which is a place of support for women who have husbands that are working their way through 423. You can send an anonymous email tonight to uh, any of these three addresses that applies to you, and someone will get right back to you. It's completely anonymous. I or no one else in leadership here sees it at all, uh, but someone who's part of 423, who's in that struggle with you, will get back to you and let you know how you can get into a group right away. There will be help and accountability and the support of others with similar struggles. I have a great many friends who are part of these groups, and, and then they've been a tremendously life-giving in their struggle for purity. And, you know, on that note, uh, Katie, the deacon over our prayer team, she rightly reminded me when she looked over this teaching that though drastic outward measures are necessary and they're beneficial, you know, the accountability, the getting rid of your laptop and smartphone or whatever it might be, the significant and lasting change will happen when the Spirit of God transforms our desires themselves. And this is something that we actually care for deeply at Van City. And honestly, the entire premise behind living out the practices of Jesus, you know, that we might be transformed, that we might learn to want what Jesus wants in the first place, that we might learn to love what he loves and to do what he does. I don't say any of this is a built-in infomercial for our particular approach to church at all, but really as just a reminder of why we're here and why we're doing this in the first place. Um, we don't beg and plead for you guys to live in community and to go through the spiritual disciplines, the practices of Jesus, and the principles of emotional health just for the sake of having something to do and so that we can have a form of church. We want to experience spiritual formation, the process of actually transforming our desires themselves, and we believe that that happens through the spiritual disciplines, learning to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, to do the things he did through the principles of emotional health. That's why we go on about these things again and again over long periods of time so that we could be transformed and not just do the quick work of, oh, okay, make a radical change in our lives, but to actually do the long-term work of spiritual form formation. So that when we do take the drastic immediate measures to repent, we're also doing the difficult and very good long-term work of formation. And we're being made new all the time. And, and that's what the practices are all about. But I would urge you guys against leaving without taking action tonight. 
Consider the shocking, graphic, and urgent nature of Jesus' warning. He doesn't say, listen, think about this. Turn it over in your head a bit. You know, go home. Consider your options. Maybe plan a conversation for later this week. He says, if your eye is the thing causing you to stumble, cut it out now. You would be better off than continuing down the road that leads to death. And he doesn't say this as a cruel dictator, but because God is a loving father. Remember that analogy of someone saving from a child being struck down by oncoming traffic. Take bold, drastic measures to avoid death. Even if it's hard, even if it's painful, there are neither guilt nor shame for you here, just the compassionate arms of your forgiving father. You won't go the road of a repentance alone. God himself will go with you, as will his collective family, the church. So with that in mind, would you guys pray with me and we'll ask the Spirit to come.